Good morning, church. Terribly sorry to interrupt your conversations. I know. But if you just very politely start to draw them to a close. As ever, it is uh, a delight to be amongst you. I feel like I always say that when I'm here. Uh, but it's just wonderful to be here. Hopefully you feel that as well. And a real privilege uh, that to be asked to speak this morning. It's not one that I take for granted, not one that I take lightly. Uh, what an honour it is uh, to speak to the Church of Jesus Christ, to teach. It's a big deal. Uh, and not least because I'm always slightly worried that I'm going to say something slightly accidentally that means I don't get asked to speak again. Um, so, you know, make the most of it while it lasts. That's what I say. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Mikey. I head up devotion and worship here at New Community Church. and part of the leadership team as well. And if you do know me, you'll know why I'm worried. Um, so today we continue our series on the Gospel of John, chapters 13 to 17, looking at uh, the words that Jesus speaks to his disciples during the Last Supper, hence the title, Farewell, Farewell My Friends. By the way, is, there, is it just me that when uh, you hear or say the title, Farewell My Friends, thinks of the, the James Blunt song? Goodbye, my lover, goodbye, my friend. Just me? Okay, it's me and Rachel Jones, so the rest of you, you're doing better than us. So last week, uh, Phil Orchard spoke wonderfully uh, on Jesus washing the disciples' feet. I thought it was incredible. Who else thought that was great? Just amazing. If you didn't listen, check it out on YouTube. Did you put your hand up, Phil? Absolutely. I love that. I'm not, I'm not about any false modesty here. I think this is going to be really great as well. Maybe not quite as good. as We'll see. <laughs> this week, we're going to continue to look at the same uh, chapter, uh, looking at the verses Uh, 18 to 38. However, this time, the headings of the passage I'll be looking at are Jesus predicts his betrayal and Jesus predicts Peter's denial. So we're in for a barrel of laughs this morning. (laughs) Um, But don't worry, I've also been given a secret second passage. Oh, well done, very good. Um, So if it's all seeming a bit bleak, uh, never fear, hope is coming. More about that later. So we've got three main sections, just to give you an idea about what the plan is. Uh, I've got three points. Very well done. I've paid attention in sermon school. Exciting. Um, However, just because I I like to be a little bit rogue, I also have a BBC TV show to go with each of those points um, that I'm going to rapidly regret as I go throughout. Um, Also, just so you know, I'm going to be saying the word buffoon quite a lot during the talk, just to make you aware. Anyway... um, And you might be wondering what the first of those BBC TV shows is. I'm sure you're all wondering. It is, of course. What else could it be? It's The Traitors. Who's been watching The Traitors? If you haven't, just incredible TV. Claudia Winkleman, Fingerless Gloves, Scottish Castles, Intrigue, Pretend Murder. It's wonderful. If you haven't been watching it, basically it's just a big game of of mafia or murder in the dark. There's a group of people who are all trying to win this uh, pot of money, but there's some traitors within their midst and if any of them are left at the end then the traitors win all the money so they've got to find out who the traitors are and the traitors get to murder these faithful it's just great go and watch it Wednesdays and Fridays Wednesdays to Fridays 9pm BBC One um, not on commission anyway back to the main thing quick whistle stop tour of the passage we're looking at here so the disciples and Jesus are hanging out for their Passover meal which we now refer to as the last supper Jesus knew it was called this the disciples haven't yet cottoned on they just think it's supper you know normal dinner out with the lads Jesus 
while we're here, is usually an excellent dinner guest. He actually disobeys one of the cardinal rules of dinner parties, uh, which is to never announce to the group that one of them is about to betray you. Really puts a dampener on proceedings. Big no-no. Don't do that. Um, but after this announcement, in verses 22 to 24, uh, which I think we can have on screen, it says, His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that is John, the author of the book, that's how he referred to himself throughout. He was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to the disciple and said, ask him which one he means. And I really like this image. I can feel like I can really see it in my mind's eye. Um, it just feels like a little moment of reality and levity uh, there in the Bible. I sort of imagine him sort of giving him the eyebrows, maybe a little nod. Little chin, little chin wag. It's kind of like the little look that the host gives to the worship leader uh, when they either want them to play one more song or finish right then. There's no difference between the two looks. We just know. It's, it's, it's like a connection. So anyway, this next bit, however, has always slightly baffled me. Because in verse 26, uh, Jesus responds and it says, Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then... Dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. So it seems pretty clear-cut, pretty obvious. But somehow, they miss it. The disciples just, just somehow don't notice it. I always, he's, he's, Jesus is like, it's this guy. And they're like, who could it possibly be? I just told you. I've always found it like a little bit unrealistic. I thought... Surely no one could be that unobservant. No one could be that stupid. And then I watched the traitors. And if you're watching Ming Long, maybe you might know what I mean. I don't want to give any particular spoilers, but there's this, been this one traitor who, it seems to me, has been so obvious that he's a traitor. Like every, after every evening round table, he's twirling his moustache and like cackling an evil laugh. I don't get how they can't see it. They're completely blind to it. Um, but the truth, of course, is that maybe we're not quite as clever as we think we are, because honestly, if I was in there, I wouldn't have a clue either as well. Um, but this does lead me on to my first point, if you're making notes, which is the Bible is full of buffoons like you and me. Now, I'm making light of this slightly, but I'm not just talking about the disciples' stunning inability to pick up on any of Jesus' not particularly subtle hints. Um, because time and time again in the Bible, we see the main characters, the heroes of the faith, messing up, doing just phenomenally stupid things. Sometimes in small ways, like when Peter uh, offers to set up tents at the Transfiguration, and God has to be like, just chill out, Peter, you've maybe missed the point somewhat. Um, and sometimes in really big and serious ways, or when King David um, gets Bathsheba pregnant and kills her husband to cover it up. Very often I feel like I'm reading the Bible going, how can you be so stupid? What is wrong with you guys? And then, like watching the traitors, I have this revelation as I look at my own life and I realize that's just very realistic because I too am a buffoon. Because I see those mistakes, those slip-ups, those failures in my own life. Not exactly, you understand, I've never had anyone's husband killed I've never passed off my wife as my sister and allowed the, the king of Egypt to take him as his own wife. Like, Emily can vouch for me on that. Um, but I, I still keenly feel that sense of, I just don't get it right. Um, 
I particularly relate to the Apostle Paul's words in Romans 7 verse 15, where he says, I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. Isn't that easy to relate to sometimes? And then I'm deeply grateful that the Bible is full of buffoons like me and you, because it shows me that God uses buffoons like me and you. In fact, those are the only people he uses. Those are the only people he's got to choose from. He uses imperfect people. He even chose Judas uh, as one of his disciples, knowing that he would betray him. One of my key verses at the moment that I keep going back to is 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9, which says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. I love that as a, as a picture, of a, as a reminder of how God works. He works through our failings and weakness. That is where his power is made known, through our buffoonery. And Simon Peter, featured prominently in this passage, uh, is one of the Bible's chief buffoons, I would have to say. He's one of those guys who acts first and then maybe, if he gets around to it, might think later. Um, he is passionate, he's hot-headed, he's reckless, he's bold and he's brash. And sometimes he gets things so right, he's there ahead of the game. But invariably, on the very next page, he's doing something hilariously wrong again, up to uh, the usual buffoonery. And we see him here at one of his lowest points, when Jesus tells him in verse 38, before the rooster crows, uh, you will disown me three times. What an enormous blow that must have been. To be so certain as to say to Jesus, I will lay down my life. Even if all the rest of these guys fail and fall away, I'll still be there. I would die for you. And then to have the man that you followed for three years, given up everything for, to say, actually, no, you're going to let me down. Now, in in many ways, um, I'm not sure I actually relate that much to Peter's specific brand of buffoonery. Whereas I say... Peter is very much an act first, maybe think later kind of guy. My sort of uh, version of buffoonery is much more think first, think again, think a little bit more, and think just one last little bit in the hope that maybe in the meantime someone else might have acted. (laughs) So it's very easy for me to look at that and say, actually, you know, I I wouldn't necessarily have, have, have said that in the first place. I would never have made that mistake because I wouldn't have said... I would die for you. I would never have been so bold. And that's my own uh, failings that I have to, have to deal with. And actually maybe many of us might think the same, but perhaps we do this more than we realise. Maybe we find ourselves praying and singing quite big words without really thinking about it. Uh, A.W. Tozer famously once said, Christians don't tell lies, they just go to church and sing them. I surrender all. Well, not quite all, but I surrender most doesn't have much of a ring to it. Lord, I give you my heart, I give you my soul, I live for you alone, except on 3 p.m. on Saturdays when I also live slightly for Mo Salah, and except for 6 a.m. on Monday morning when I said I'd get up early and pray, but I just press snooze again and again and again. And again, I jest a little bit, but... I do think we often, we pray and we sing big words, and I believe that God takes us at our words, 
uh, in those moments. We're not immune to the empty promises uh, that Peter made and to failing to live up to them. And that's not to say that we should avoid ever making these promises. I don't want us to, out of caution of getting something wrong, uh, not give our all to Jesus. But also, I think there is space for us to be like, oh, to check ourselves and do we really mean this? Is this something we can sign up for? Um, Because this is what happens here. Uh, Jesus tells Peter he's going to deny him, and that's what he does. Um, When Jesus is arrested, uh, Peter follows, and he's accused by someone there of being one of Jesus' disciples. And he gets his chance. He gets his chance then to live up to his words, and he fluffs it. Um, He denies even knowing the man that he's followed for three years, the man he's given up everything for, the man he believes is the Messiah, the man he said earlier that evening that he'd die for. And maybe we haven't done that exactly, but I think we all know that feeling of of having let God down, of having not quite lived up to what we said we would do, what we wanted to do. Maybe even already this year we've made New Year's resolutions to to, to follow God in a certain way that we we haven't quite managed to keep up with. Now, I don't want us to to beat ourselves up this morning. That is not my point. Uh, But I do want us to, to, to challenge us to not shy away from that, not forget that. But I do also want us to be encouraged, uh, even, that we see uh, the heroes of the faith in the Bible making these same mistakes up to their own buffoonery as we are. And God still uses them, still uses them, and he still uses us. That does not disqualify them, does not disqualify us. Because this is my next point, if you happen to be making notes. Jesus is in the business of restoration. Thank goodness. Amen? That's good news. And you're probably already wondering which BBC TV show goes with this point, and it's, of course, The Repair Shop. (laughs) Isn't that beautiful? I haven't watched loads of it, but what a wonderful picture of grace. People bring in their beloved old objects that maybe are completely broken or have have seen much better days, and an expert lovingly restores them, brings them back to their former glory. What a wonderful picture of grace that is. And now this is where our secret second passage swoops in to save the day. Praise the Lord. Because Peter's story doesn't end with Jesus um, telling him he's going uh, to deny him. It doesn't end with him um, denying him, discerning him three times. It doesn't end with him breaking down bitterly, realizing what he's done. So we're looking now at John 21, which is actually one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It's some days after the resurrection. The disciples are still a little bit scared and confused. and they, Jesus has appeared to them, but they've gone back. to to fishing to what they know. They've gone fishing overnight and not for the first time in the Bible, they've caught nothing, beginning to believe they're not very good at it. Um, And uh, as they're coming back in the morning, someone from the shore calls out. He says, have you caught any fish? And they probably very good-naturedly said, no, we haven't caught any fish, thank you. Funny you should ask. Uh, And he says, throw your nets over the other side. And they do, and lo and behold, a whole heap of fish It's at this point that the disciples realize it's Jesus. And Peter, being Peter, just jumps out of the boat and swims. He can't wait. He gets too excited. He needs to go and meet Jesus, leaving the other disciples to deal with the fish, by the way. Um, And on the beach, Jesus has made them breakfast. Verse 12 is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I'm going to put this on my fridge. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. 
Amen? That's the kind of verse I want to hear more of. I think this is such a picture of the gentle kindness of Jesus, the servant heart that Phil talked about last week. And it speaks to how down-to-earth and normal uh, our God is, that he wants to be involved in these tiny, minuscule, mundane, everyday moments, and that he shows us his grace through those. What a... What an amazing thing. What does he do after the spectacular, earth-shattering event of the resurrection? He makes his friends breakfast. Cooks them a beautiful fish barbecue. Oh, yes. A little bit of sea bass, beautifully seasoned. Maybe a couple of, you know, many roast potatoes. Glass of white wine out in the garden in the summer. Glorious. Of course, this was breakfast, so they didn't have white wine. Um, but it's, it's one of my questions I want to ask Jesus, you know, when I get, get to heaven. It's like, Jesus, tell me about the fish barbecue. What did you cook? What did you use? How did you make sure it didn't stick onto the grill? Because yeah, you didn't have the little spray stuff back then, did you? Um, but yes, this is a wonderful, just normal, everyday picture of the wonderful grace of God. And Jesus doesn't just leave it there, though. He doesn't just sweep the incident with Peter under the rug. He addresses the elephant in the room ever so gently and kindly. He doesn't tell him what a terrible mistake he's made, how he's let him down. Peter already knows that. So we see this conversation uh, where Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? One for each of the times that he denied him. And there's this clever little link that John, uh, John makes. Both this conversation and Peter's denial in the first place take, part, take, uh, yeah, take place in front of a charcoal fire. There's this little link to remind us, oh, this is, this is what it's about. And uh, probably a sensory link even for Peter himself, that distinctive smell of the fire bringing him back to what he'd done. So let's read verses 15 to 17 together. I mean, I'll read them. You can just listen. You read in your head. So when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. So there's a few things here I wanted to look at. Uh, Firstly, it's that first question I found very interesting. Do you love me more than these? There's a few schools of thought as to what this might mean. Does he mean, do you love me more than this stuff? The fishing that you know, the fish, your friends, what you're familiar with. Do you love me more than that? Will you put me first? Potentially, that's a, a good question to ask. But it feels to me more grammatically, more like, do you love me more than these guys love me? Which always felt to me like a weird thing to ask. Does he need to love them? Love him more than those guys? Is that important? But then I wonder whether actually what Jesus is doing here is, uh, is referencing what, what Peter had said. When Peter had said, even if all of these guys fall away, I won't. What he's really claiming is that I love you more than these guys. And, P- and Jesus is just drawing his attention to that, gently rebuking him for his hubris, his arrogance, and his, his rash words. See, interestingly, I was doing some research on this, reading some N.T. Wright. I say reading, that's actually a lie. I watched a video of N.T. Wright. Sorry, I tried to sound smart. It was a video. It was six minutes. It was really good. Um, 
Uh, interestingly, the first time Jesus asks, do you love me? In the Greek, um, the word he uses there is agape. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Because uh, in, in Greek, there's lots of different words for love, whereas we've just gone, yeah, love, that'll do. Um, whereas uh, so agape specifically means uh, like a self-giving, selfless, unconditional love, the love that Jesus has for us in dying for us. But when Peter replies, yes, Lord, I love you, he doesn't use that same form of the verb. He uses uh, a word that means like close friendship. It's almost like he can't quite bring himself to say this big agape kind of love. But what is even more interesting is that on the third time that Jesus asks, do you love me? He then uses the same form of verb that, that Peter has been using. And it's like in his grace, he meets us where we're at. He meets Peter where he's at. Okay, then you can't do this, but we can do here. We can go from there. That's just the wonderful grace of God. And then how does Jesus reply? Well, he asks Peter to feed his lambs, to look after his sheep. And this is, again, something I, I uh, gleaned from N.T. Wright. It's not just a word of forgiveness, but also a word of commission. When Jesus forgives and restores us, he doesn't just leave it at that. He doesn't just say, okay, you're sorted now, put you on the shelf. He, um, he gives us work to do. That's part of the restoration process. Grace is not just a blank slate of forgiveness, although it is. It is also the means of transformation. Yes, Jesus meets us where we're at, but he doesn't just leave us there. As Paul says in Romans 6, 1 to 2, he says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. I am consistently struck by the outrageous, hilarious goodness and kindness of God, but exhibited here in such a simple and understated way. If you feel like maybe you're in this place at the moment, you've messed up, whether in a big or a small way, Jesus is waiting. He's made breakfast. He wants to gently restore and reconcile, not sweep under the rug. It might be a little painful, as we see um, Peter, he was, he was hurt when Jesus asked him. And that's not a, a punishment, it's just part of the restoration process. That might be difficult. However, this does leave me to somewhat of a difficult question. For me, it, it begs the question, though, what about Judas? We see Peter telling Judas that he's going to betray him earlier, but we don't see him restored in the same way that Peter is. And this is a little bit difficult. I, don't, I feel a little bit woefully unqualified uh, to deal with this. I don't know all the answers on this. Um, but the question is, you know, was that sin too big for God to forgive? Is God's grace bigger than that? And I would humbly hope and suggest that maybe that God's grace is big enough for that. God is bigger than that. And is it possible that the difference between Judas and Peter is that when Peter gets the opportunity, without hesitation, he runs. In fact, he doesn't even run. He swims straight back to Jesus. They both feel remorse for what they did, but Judas doesn't do that. He is overcome by his shame. He hides and runs away. And I'm not saying that's necessarily the whole picture, but it does lead me to my third and final point, which is run towards God. Every slip is an opportunity to turn to him again. And um, by this point, I was really regretting the whole BBC TV show thing. Uh, and so, clutching at straws, the TV show that goes with this is, let's say, Grandstand, that's got running in it, or the Olympics, BBC's coverage of the Olympics, perfect, great. So, to recap, we've seen that we are all 
of us, buffoons, that we trip up and mess up and fail and sin, that we don't live up to our promises, but that God uses us still. That doesn't disqualify us. And we've seen that Jesus is in the business of restoration. His gentle kindness and grace is what allows us buffoons to keep going. But we have to choose to accept that. We need to run towards him. It's too easy in our shame when we've, we've done something wrong uh, to hide away like Adam and Eve in Genesis. To not feel worthy, to feel like we've got to build ourselves up again before we can come back to him. But the whole point of Jesus' grace is that we can't do that by ourselves. That's his work, not ours. And this is stuff that many of us will know well, but we need reminding about it so often. I went away with Theo this week to a little leadership gathering of some leaders around the UK and listened to Rachel Hughes uh, speak. Uh, One of the ways she encouraged us to stay the course of the faith is to keep short accounts with God, to practice confession regularly, to keep running back to him, to not be afraid to do that. Uh, We went away as a leadership team uh, the week before, and one of the things we felt that God was saying for us as a church this year is the importance of of consecration of our own um, giving ourselves in holiness to God again. And confession and repentance, which we don't necessarily talk about too much in our style, our tradition of church, are so key to that, to continually keep running back to God. Because Jesus knows when we're going to mess up. We see that in the first passage. He knows about Judas. He knows about Peter. He's not surprised by our slip-ups and our sin. He's just waiting for us on the beach with a lovely fish barbecue, waiting for us to jump out of the boat. So why not see these moments as wonderful opportunities to come to Jesus afresh again? Um, I've been reading some Brother Lawrence in The Practice of the Presence of God and and he and many other teachers in that kind of contemplative, got it right, Complem- oh, I got it wrong again, contemplative tradition. Um, he teaches that in our times of prayer, we are so easily distracted. Our mind wanders so quickly. We're thinking about our to-do list, our stresses, our excitement, what we're going to make for dinner. And it teaches us not to, not to be frustrated by those moments, but to, to stop and say, Let's take this each time that happens as a new opportunity to fix our eyes on Jesus again, to focus on him again. And I think this is a really helpful analogy for when we slip up and make mistakes in our life. To not get frustrated at ourselves again, but to say, oh yeah, let's turn back to Jesus. Take this as a new opportunity to come to him afresh. And it also reminds us that this running to God is not just for the big stuff. Because in reality, in our day to day, we're not looking at murder, betrayal, and adultery. It's much more likely, like in our times of prayer, in our lives, we find ourselves so easily distracted. So maybe we haven't messed up on the scale of, of Peter. But have we lost our focus? Have we become distracted by the cares and worries of the world? Have we taken our eyes off of Jesus? Then still, Jesus is waiting for us at the beach with that fish barbecue. The same applies. Don't wait. Don't feel like you have to build yourself up again and get good enough to jump back in. Jump out of the boat. Run towards him. If it's for the first time in years, if it's for the first time ever, if it's for the fifth time since breakfast, don't hesitate. He's waiting for us. So, 
As we're circling the runway here, these are my three main points as a recap. Number one, God uses buffoons like you and me. Praise the Lord. Number two, Jesus is in the business of restoration. Even better. Thank goodness for that. And number three, our response to that is to run to him every time. Every slip is an opportunity to turn back to him. Let's not miss that opportunity. So now we're going to move into a chance to respond to that. Uh, if the worship team would like to come back up. It is 11, 11.30. Um, so if you, uh, if you have kids to collect, you can feel free to go and collect them as well. Um, if you want to, to stay in and for the response, if you feel like this is something that's connecting with you, do ask someone else uh, to go and collect your children that you know, that you trust. Um, so what do we do about all of this? What are my uh, points of response here? Maybe you feel like this resonates really with you, that you have, you've messed up, messed, messed up big time. If that's recently or maybe well back in the day, you feel like it's disqualified you or there's something that you've not dealt with. Come to the barbecue. Jesus is waiting to restore you. Or maybe it doesn't feel that big. Maybe it just feels like you've taken your eyes off the ball a bit, gotten a little bit distracted. You've not... Um, denied Jesus but you've just lost focus not lived up to your promises maybe come to the barbecue Jesus is waiting to restore you and maybe you don't feel like either of those resonate with you right now you feel in a good place let's take a moment to be grateful to the God who is in the business of restoration to the God who uses buffoons like you and me you can join the barbecue too grab a bit of sea bass or maybe this is something you've never done. You've never, not yet, turned to Jesus yourself. Whether or not you feel like you're just not good enough, he wouldn't take you. Let me tell you, that's not the case. His grace is bigger than that. Or if you've just been enticed by this idea of the gentle goodness and kindness of our God, we would love to pray with you. So I'm going to invite the band to, to sing and lead us again. If any of those resonate with you, um, come to Jesus now. You can do that where you are. You can ask someone next to you to pray for you. I'm going to ask the, the prayer team to come as well. Um, if you want to come and talk to someone, you don't have to tell them everything if you don't want to. Um, but it's, I think it's important if we feel that has spoken to us to make that step. And if that's you for the first time, you want to come and know Jesus a bit more. You, want to, you haven't made that decision before, please do come and talk to one of us at the prayer team or myself or, or Theo and Catherine. I'm just going to pray before I hand over to the worship team. Jesus, we thank you for your grace. Lord, that you are so kind and good. Lord, that you, in our weakness, that you are strong. Your grace is sufficient for us. Lord, you are in the business of restoring us, not just leaving us where we are. Lord, we come to you again this morning on that barbecue on the beach. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.